Oh, you, look, you have a nicer computer than the last time I was here, though. For, oh, yeah. For that part. Right. It has way less ports, so there's a computer and a breakout box for the computer. Look at that. <laughs> right, I'm going to try and not spill on the breakout box. Yeah, that'd be... Why don't I... Let's do this sort Nobody of... Nobody spilled yet, so... Yeah, don't jinx it. Derek. <laughs> what the hell would you say a thing like that? Five minutes later. Uh, do you have anything funny that happened that we should talk about first? That's usually what we do here. Mm. Wow, you did it! <laughs> did <laughs> Well, there's our open. <laughs> Hi, Chris. Hi, Derek. Joined today by Chris Toomey, co-worker at ThoughtBot in Boston. How's it going? Good. So, we share a project. We do. Yeah. I don't know what to say about it. <laughs> We have a few of us on the project. I'm enjoying that. I haven't worked with other ThoughtBotters in a bit. I had been on a project for nine months just on my lonesome. So it was really nice to get to hang out with some ThoughtBotters, is this including your, yourself. Is this your first Elm project? This is my first Elm project. Is it your first time writing Elm? I've dabbled. I've done like the tutorials and things, and I think we did a workshop here a number of months ago. So I was familiar with it mm-hmm. like conversationally, but I'd never actually written it. Yeah, I was in the same boat. And I am, uh, how are you feeling? I really like a lot of what it represents. I think it's a great stepping stone in a lot of things. I'm not sure that it feels like, to me, like it's a, like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll probably be doing a lot of this in the future. Hmm. Stuff like it, I absolutely feel we'll be doing. Things with a compiler, a good compiler that is giving you nice, meaningful, friendly feedback. That feels like the direction that we're going. But the sort of middle ground that Elm takes between some of the fancier functional typed languages like Haskell and Scala and things like that, and the more approachable JavaScript land, uh, I think is probably the wrong optimization for long-term, larger projects, et cetera. But I think it is an absolutely wonderful first approach to those sort of ideas. And I've really enjoyed the bit that we've done on this project. I'm curious, like, what do you think it's missing? Because like, so, so from where I said, I was like, oh, okay, I see what this does now. I see how it works. And I would have no problem using this over just to cast aspersions on a technology I've never used. React, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, I can see how this would be a better version of React, not necessarily because of the functionality of React, but more because of, like, I get this compiler. And I know I can get that with, like, flow and things like that that I can layer on top, perhaps, to some extent, I guess, is what I'm led to believe. To some extent. Certainly not to the same degree. Elm can tell you some some important, true things about your projects. Flow Mm -hmm. can give you some really great suggestions, sort of a, a spectrum for them. And so Elm is on the far correctness end of the spectrum. If Elm tells you your code's going to work, it will probably never crash. Mm -hmm. It might do other things than what you intend, but that's sort of, there's always going to be that inherent to programming. But its compiler is extremely good at what it does. Flow is is excellent, but not as complete. It's never going to be able to be as complete because it's intending to be closer to JavaScript. Mm -hmm. TypeScript is one step even further, where actually those two projects are, they came out in a very similar time span and... TypeScript is specifically did not have fundamental correctness or soundness, I believe is, is the terminology, as its design goal, mm-hmm. whereas Flow did. So Flow is like, we want to get the math right, and TypeScript was, we want to get the experience right. We want this to be useful for developers and approachable and all those sort of things. Uh, and interestingly, they're both sort of converging towards each other, where TypeScript is getting more correct and Flow is getting more usable, but neither of them will ever get to the level that Elm's at, because Elm is just math at the okay. end of the day. 
well, that just reinforces to me. So, so to me, I'm, I just feel like, okay, if somebody wants us to build one of these whiz-bangy front-end things, mm-hmm. which is the technical term, I know. Somebody wants us to build one of those, then I think Elm seems like a good fit for me. So why are, what, what do you find lacking in it? So the main thing that I have found, and I will admit to the previous summary that I just gave of like that hierarchy of the type systems and what I'm about to say is all like, I don't know, hearsay and what I've cobbled together from reading some blog posts. So, you know. Take it with a grain of salt, but Elm is unable to express certain things as cleanly as a stronger type system like Haskell or Scala or a number of the others that are that are sort of fancier in that space. And what that means, recently we came up against this with translations. So translations, we're writing this Elm app, but we want to be able to translate it. So say, oh, this is in the English language or this is in Spanish or French or any other language. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, we have to pass down the configured language through every single level of our code. Every single function now takes the language as an argument. Mm-hmm. And that is just very noisy. That is kind of annoying. There's a correctness there. Like, I'm never going to miss it because the compiler will tell me if I've missed it. So I'm not going to get it wrong, but it is annoying and it is noisy. And it, it feels less related to the work that I'm doing. Like I want that to be an incidental concern pushed to the edges of my system, not laced through every single function in my system. And there are times like when I'm doing Elm view work where I break out a function and I know it it doesn't need any strings. So Mm -hmm. I like I choose not to pass the translations to that function, Right. right? Or the language or whatever I need. But then after very quickly learning, like at some point uh, this function is going to call another function that's going to need so yep. I might as well just go ahead and pass it. So like every function in the view takes it regardless of whether or not it's going to use it because there's a high degree of likelihood that it will at some point use it. Right. Or you end up with that leaf node view that you're like, oh, now this label down here needs to be translated. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, that's seven layers deep. Okay, let's go all the way up to the top, find the language in the most recent place in the history that has it, and then push that all the way back down through the, the right. view rendering tree, which again, is fine and is doable and will be correct. And so in that sense, I really love Elm, that right. I can I can write front-end apps with a level of confidence that I did not have before. Then again, I've used React a lot and like the context API is something that exists in React, which is you're rendering this tree of components, which are essentially like functions. It's very close, depending on how you write it. React can feel very close to Elm, Mm -hmm. where you're just rendering a bunch of functions that build up a tree of little view components. But at some points, you want to pass down additional data through that tree. You don't have to pass that piece of data all the way through every single layer. So you can just use this thing called context, which is basically put it on a side shelf, and then any subcomponent anywhere down in the tree can just say, oh, I need that. I need the store so I can get the current state of the application. Mm -hmm. I need the localization. I need the theme provider or whatever it is. And there's a real nicety and usability to that. Sort of speaks to like JavaScript has absolutely taken off because it's very approachable. It's very easy to get up and running and and build some things. So finding that that middle ground, I think, is a really challenging thing. And Mm -hmm. I like the choices that were made when Elm was designed and some of the purposeful limitations that the creator put on it. But the creator, that sounds so fancy. (laughs) A gentleman named Evan. Evan decided that Elm should be limited in certain ways. And that definitely makes it more approachable from like a math functional programming perspective, but it means that it's a little bit more limited or verbose or boilerplate or things like that. So when we've paired on these kind of refactorings, we were both kind of like figuring out Elm to start. We had a situation where we, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it, it wasn't the translations, but it was something similar where we mm-hmm. found ourselves like, oh, we've got to pass this through here. We've got to thread this needle, right? Yep. All the way through because we need this data all the way down here. And I remember at the time thinking like, oh, 
is this a thing that like the reader monad in Haskell does for you, right? Is that an example of something that either can't be done in Elm or mm -hmm. just isn't done in Elm? Like I don't I don't know enough about that. I just yeah. know that I just remember reading in Learn You a Haskell or something that the mm -hmm. reader monad was a place to store like state that you needed to access in a module without passing it all the way through that kind of thing. Yep. Again, I think our collective functional programming knowledge is like yeah. we're we're right at the edge of it, but I believe the reader monad is. Yeah the solution to that problem and is fundamentally inaccessible in Elm. We'll get Pat Brisbane to listen to this podcast. Yeah, Pat, Pat did a, was that true? <laughs> uh, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. It has to do with higher kinded types to, to use a fancy phrase there. And Elm purposefully does not have higher kinded types or does not have them out there in user land where we could pick them up and, and run with them. So there's been a couple of times where like Joel is kind of our office <laughs> Elm expert, I feel mm -hmm. like. And there's been a couple of times where I'm like, hey, I want to write a function that has this limitation on the type. Like I want to do, I can't remember specifically what it was, but almost every time I ask that question, we're like, oh, it'd be interesting to be able to do this. Right. Joel's answer is, we don't have higher kind of types, so you can't do that. And I don't yeah. really understand what that means. All I know is that if somebody asks me how to do something in Elm that I don't know how to do, I'm just going to say, we can't do that because we don't have higher <laughs> types. And there you go. You sound like a functional programming math whiz. There. Yes. And then you say something like a monad is just a burrito or something. And then you're... <laughs> in the space of endo <laughs> condiments. And then you're all yeah. set with So that. to your like base question, it's been great. I've really mm -hmm. enjoyed working on Elm. I've really enjoyed working on it, a real project and actually getting to use it in anger, as they say, and experience what that's like. And the experience of working with the compiler and refactoring under the compiler is spectacular. Mm -hmm. That idea of just like, where should I start on this large sweeping change that's going to affect a lot of files? I don't know. Anywhere. I'll start there. And then the compiler just continues to give you that information as to where to look next mm -hmm. is amazing. Yep. But again, I think now that I've gotten a taste of that, I want that, but with some extra stuff. Right. The translations thing was interesting to me because years ago when I wrote my first JavaScript front end before I came to ThoughtBot, we knew we needed translations. And so we did, we used like a JavaScript library to do translations on the client side mm -hmm. and it was slow. And so I rewrote it and it was faster, but still like we're asking the client to do a lot of things. And I sort of came to the opinion then that particular example is something I don't think clients should do. Like, I don't think you should have clients doing translations on the fly. Doing maybe maybe doing string lookup is fine, mm -hmm. but I don't. I think that like for example, in that Elm code base, the reason why we have to pass the language around everywhere is because theoretically at runtime you could change the language and say like, oh, now it's Spanish, and then you could theoretically this doesn't exist yet, but theoretically there that could change the mm -hmm. way the translations that you get right. But in reality, that's not what's going to happen. Like, if we have a signed-in user, we know what language they speak. We can say, give me the English strings file. And anytime I ask for this type, mm -hmm. make it this string, right? We could also build different versions of the app, one per right. language that exactly. we support. And then yep. using content negotiation, say, like, you get the English version of the app, you get the French right. version of the app. And then at that point, we wouldn't have to pass anything. We just have static coded right. strings out at every level. It's but an example of a thing that I feel like every time I see it, every time I see client side doing translations, I wince because it's just another example of a time where like we've decided to make the client's computer do work that it doesn't need to do. I think you'd be really hard pressed to continue having view rendering beyond the client and not have translation beyond the client though. So perhaps your base question is, should the client be doing view rendering? Well, I don't know. Why can't it do view rendering but not translate? Like doing string lookup, I feel like is different than doing translation. Like, yes, there's a cost to looking up a, a particular value of a string. But even that, like, yeah, I guess even that I would say, like, why not localize a package of views instead, right? Not sure. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I think you end up in a different sort of complexity problem there because now you have a different version of the app with actual strings at each of mm -hmm. these leaf nodes. And so you have to make sure you're maintaining the same views across each of them. Whereas in this case, you're saying there is this hole in the app that we fill in right. with the right value at, right. at or, runtime. Well, I mean, it's another, another preprocessor step, right? Of like, you know, you, I'm not suggesting that you would have 10 templates, a copy of 10 mm -hmm. templates more. You would have like a preprocessor step, which JavaScript people seem totally willing to have. But the uh, Elm folks, not so much, because <laughs> we have a nice compiler. And then, as you say, a preprocessor step. What are we <laughs> grepping and gsubbing and things throughout yeah. these files? So All right, that's I don't know. True. Yeah, I don't know enough. I'm not, by any stretch, a front-end, <clears throat> client-side application expert. So I certainly used to be more experienced than I am in it, and I dabble in it when necessary for, mm -hmm. for client work. But I've really enjoyed the Elm work I've done. I've enjoyed more than the Ember work I did. I've enjoyed it more than the very little React I've done. And I've enjoyed it more than the JavaScript MVC, which was a thing that I've done. And I've enjoyed it more than the Backbone. And I've enjoyed it more than the <laughs> Angular. So I've done a lot of these things. And it's You've the did, only yeah. one that I've been like, I've done for a period of three to six months and not. I guess React, I never actively hated. I actually, for the client where I did a little bit of React, it was just like one of those things where I was like, this didn't need to be React. And so I never really even considered whether or not I liked React or not. Yeah. It was more like this was a silly use of React. I think there are two independent questions there. Of like, should we be using a client-side mm -hmm. templating language or, or full-on MVC sort of thing? And then which of them should we be using and, and how do they work or which language in the case of Elm? But that first question of like, should we actually move this logic onto the client is a big one. And I think more and more stuff is moving there. And I don't always agree with it. I think I'm more on that end of the spectrum. I like those sort of apps more than some of the other folks at ThoughtBot. Like mm -hmm. I think each of us exists on a spectrum somewhere and <laughs> I'm a little more open to those ideas, but I think still we see a lot of stuff. that's like that, that could have just been rendered on the server. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Those are our feelings on Elm. <laughs> Those are our feelings on Elm. I, I would say I would happily reach for it again. I'm just, I'm sort of looking to the next thing. I'm like, all right, this is great, but I don't think it's the final thing mm -hmm. that I would want to use. And I see only more and more of this sort of client-side app building in the future. So I'm interested, particularly the thing that's caught my eye is Scala.js. So mm -hmm. Scala as a programming language is functional, strongly typed, but it's much more approachable than Haskell, which is the other thing that I've tried in that space. So mm -hmm. Elm is like the least strongly typed or at least elm is the simplest of the type systems across those and haskell is the most complete pure like real implementation of all of that and scala.js seems to be a really or scala broadly the language seems to be a really nice middle ground mm -hmm. sort of an 80 20 of a lot of the power of haskell but without some of the more frustrating rough bits where like everything is pure in haskell like seriously everything you don't get to mess around with that it's like well what if i just want to print a string sometimes mm-hmm no, you cannot. And that's not really the answer, but it's harder. It's mm -hmm. it's much harder to get started with that. And so Scala has definitely caught my attention for that. And Scala.js is, you write Scala code and it gets turned into JavaScript. So I'm very intrigued by that. We have a few folks doing some Scala work uh, here in the Boston office now. So I'm hoping to pick their brains more about that in the coming weeks. But uh, yeah, that's, that's sort of my thoughts on Elm and Scala and functional okay. front ends. So the other thing that you and I have worked together on somewhat recently is we both kind of stumbled into GraphQL together, I feel like. I was on a client project that had GraphQL, and you were on a client project that was considering GraphQL. Mm -hmm. And so we worked on implementing a GraphQL API, I guess. I was going to say endpoint, but GraphQL API 
to both are true to yeah. hub which is our internal like system that represents all the employees who work here and the skills they have and what assignments they have and things like that so we work together on that you, you've gone further in it farther in it than i have because you maintained that client project whereas i rotated off yep. onto something else but i have really enjoyed graphql it's uh probably the thing that i've been like most excited about in the past many years and the most like consistently excited each step further into the world of graphql that i go i'm like oh yeah no this is great this is this makes a lot of sense to me. I think it solves a lot of real business problems that we have. My exposure to GraphQL was interesting because it started with Tell Me When It Closes, which we've talked about a few times, I think, mm -hmm. on this show. A uh, wonderful service that will let you know when issues or pull requests close. So everyone should check that out if you haven't. Whose idea was that again? That was Derek Pryor's idea. <laughs> Sometimes Derek just walks by my desk and sprinkles ideas and then I implement <laughs> them. But we were building Tell Me When It Closes and GitHub had just released their new GraphQL API. So it was something that we could poke at. And so with that, I just got a, a sort of taste of, okay, I'm a client. I want to consume data from this service. This GraphQL thing looks cool. Let's try that. And the experience was wonderful. As a consumer, it's amazing to just be able to ask for anything you want and get that. And so actually, very briefly, we should probably explain the loosest of terms what GraphQL is. Uh, it's mm -hmm. an alternative to REST. It is a query language for your API. So rather than hitting REST endpoints and getting back whatever they return to you, you send a structured query specifying all of the fields that you want, and the server will then respond with those. So what it means is that your clients are able to ask for exactly the data that they need, even related objects. So for instance, at Facebook, which is where this was invented, you can ask for a user, and you can ask for all of their friends, and you can ask for the events that they're going to, and you know all the people that are going to that. Mm -hmm. Again, assuming that you have access and that Cambridge Analytica is not involved. <laughs> but that's broadly the idea is to be able to ask for what you need to be able to paint more complex UIs and to be able to serve a lot of different clients. So iOS apps, web apps, et cetera, all with the same single API source. So with Tell Me When It Closes, we were able to do that with GitHub's data. We need to pull in information about a whole bunch of issues and pull requests and what their state was and who had opened and closed them most recently. And the GraphQL API was head and shoulders a better experience than working with the REST API. We were able to ask for exactly what we needed, get it back in exactly the shape that we wanted. We didn't even really have to manipulate the data when we got it back because that's part of what a GraphQL API does is it just gives it to you with even some fields pre-computed and things like that. So that was the start, which was just a very naive client interaction, and mm -hmm. it was great. And then from there, I think it was a, a number of months later that you had started on a project with that, and we poked around with the Hub API. And I'll be honest, I was pretty convinced that while the client, the consumer experience of GraphQL was great, I was certain that it was going to be just nonsense to implement that on the server side. Yeah, I was. Like, I remember consuming GraphQL and being like, okay, this must be... Or, even before I had worked on this client project, reading about GraphQL and being like, this looks really cool from the client. Yep. It's got to be a nightmare on the server. Yeah, somebody's got to pay this bill, right? And weirdly, my and I think your experience was like, I may even like this better than building a REST API. Mm -hmm. this, there's a tiny bit, not even more work, but like different work and different thinking. And once you understand the, the ideas inherent to GraphQL, it's actually very easy to build an API and to extend that API over time. And one of the really interesting things to me is a REST API, each new endpoint you add, you're adding one more thing. So if you had five endpoints, you've added another one, now you have six. Whereas in GraphQL, each new field that you add or type that you add to the whole thing has sort of a multiplicative effect because mm -hmm. you can now traverse between relationships and the amount of utility that a given client can get based on any small change that you make is much bigger. So I almost view a GraphQL API as like an investment that grows over time. Right. Whereas a REST API is, yeah, we, we gave, like, there's a new endpoint. 
you get new data, but very much server-driven. They define what you get in a REST context, and you're stuck with that. And how many REST APIs have you used where it's like the representation you get, like you get a, you get some nested resources back, but the representation you get back isn't the same as the rep representation you get back like doesn't have the same fields or maybe even the types of the fields are slightly yep. different from when you query that when you query that resource directly or something like that or the you don't get the complete information in the fields if you want more information on this tag you have to hit the tags endpoint to yep. get all of it i would say basically every rest api that i've right. ever worked cuz they're hard with. to keep there is no underlying like there's the underlying data model of mm -hmm. your application but there's no underlying like hey anytime we're talking about a tag this is what a tag looks like Yep. Right. And this is what we're going to show every time we talk about a tag. And there can be with like, there are things like serializers and that can allow you to confidently approach these, I guess. But I've never experienced a REST API that was as consistent as something like a GraphQL API should be. Although I, I will say <laughs> the GraphQL API that I worked on certainly had things where it was like, oh, we used a new type for it here rather than use it, you know, like various things. Like it's still down to implementation, but it is. And GraphQL is also a newer technology. And I think. People are still figuring out the best practices there, but I think there's a lot more room to, again, allow the client to do what they need. And there's always a battle in REST between providing a useful data set from any given endpoint and not over-providing, not sending so much data that you're bogging down the requests and having slow things going to mobile clients and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. GitHub's API is actually really interesting. I recently added a new feature to tell me when it closes that allows us to link directly to the event on the issue timeline that closed the issue or pull request. Mm -hmm. And I was really excited about this. I actually used it as like an, a pairing interview thing on a Friday here at ThoughtPot, uh, and it was going really well. And we got to like the very last thing, and it turned out only once one of the closed versus merged events in the GraphQL API exposed the right data that we needed. And the other mm -hmm. one was just, it didn't have it. And I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> so we ended up having to switch back to the REST API. And it was very stark because immediately what was this one clean request mm -hmm. turned into three or four requests. And I had to sort of cobble them together. And in one of them, I had almost the data that I needed. Mm -hmm. so they were giving me part of the user back, but not the part that I needed. And it was just a perfect example of the pain of a REST API. Not that like, I think we're both fans of REST and I think we've both given talks about REST in the past. <laughs> and for a long time, like I, I really liked that technology and that approach. But now that I've seen GraphQL, I'm sort of like, yeah, that's that's the thing I want to do. That That's what makes sense to me. Yeah, and I don't think that like, when I say I'm a fan of REST, I might stop short and say, I, know, I don't know if I ever said I was a fan of REST APIs. I'm yeah. a fan of building web applications thinking about resources, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're going to be providing an API, a flexible API that you expect a mobile client to use and mm -hmm. customers to use and things like that, and you want that to be one API, that tends to breed situations where you're like, oh, well, here's our admin REST API, and here's yep. our this API. And with GraphQL, this is one of those things that's very much up to you to figure out how to do, but like you can contextually say like, oh, these types of users get to see these fields, whereas mm -hmm. these types of users do not get to see these fields, and those types of things that you want. And it's much easier to have one underlying implementation of your API mm -hmm. than it is, I think, through that one post endpoint <laughs> than it is through REST. And then you get rid of the things that I've always kind of shook my head at, like HAL and... Hypermedia. Hypermedia and hate yep. hatos. Hatos, <laughs> like Cheerios, but with hate. Yes, uh, exactly. That's the exact joke I made in my REST talk. Uh, that might be where I got it then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you get rid of all those things because like there's one endpoint. You don't need to yep. worry about how to link between endpoints. And my guess is your approach is similar 
we liked and talked about REST because it was a way to bring consistency to applications. Yeah. And particularly as consultant web developers, a lot of our time is coming into new things. And the more familiar it is, I think the better. I don't think that's unique to consultants, but I think we feel that pain more and we perhaps push for that more. I would say it's a hill we have to climb more often than other people have to mm -hmm. climb. But once you eliminate that hill or ease yep. its incline, the benefits to your team who will only have to climb that hill once are still worth it because you're going to be able to onboard people like it's just things they don't need to consider like mm -hmm. it's just it just continues like we continually hit this hit this because we are continually onboarding yeah right but so are people for your company right hopefully and building new apps and yeah there's yep. it's always true we just we happen to be the canaries right so. and so i'm a little afraid of giving that up right the only time i've tried to implement a graphql api is in ruby using mm -hmm. the graphql ruby gem and there's a lot that you're just kind of out there doing by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and like like the first time we had a we added an endpoint to be able to query users by various things. Like you mm -hmm. could query users by their role or by their I don't remember what else you could do. Various different things. We we're like, all right, well we're gonna want an object that like understands how to turn this thing into an active record query because that's our underlying data store. And like yep. all this was like a pattern that we felt like we were inventing, right? <laughs> like if we do it this one way, we're gonna want the rest of the application to do it this way. Or potentially this could be a way that the rest of our API does it for every other type of object that needs to be queried in this way. Yeah, it definitely does feel like there's more that we need to rebuild and more that we need to figure out. Things like error handling and there are a handful of things that are still like, mm, I'm not quite sure how best to express that within a GraphQL API. But overall, the development experience and particularly the productivity that it lends towards client developers is just absolutely unmatched. And so the question that I get from a lot of people is like, so, so are you never doing REST again? Well, no, because everything's contextual and, and for mm -hmm. reasons. And there's a handful of examples where I would probably still reach for a REST API. But typically, the way I answer it is to highlight the case where I think GraphQL is the most useful. And actually, the, the client app that I was working on that I got to do both the server and client implementation for their, their new GraphQL setup, they're a client that they are a two-sided marketplace. So they're working to provide basically a platform for commerce in a two-sided marketplace, similar to Airbnb, basically, where Airbnb has the people who own homes and want to rent them out, and then they have the people that want to rent those homes. So already, we have two different consumers looking to interact with the data. In the case of this particular company, they also have a very strong group of admins in the middle to facilitate this interaction and make sure everything's going well and you know, helping particular situations and you know, facilitating any customer requests or things like that. So now we have three distinct views on the same data. But in each of those cases, they have a web view, basically, and then they also are starting to build out mobile views. So each of those three might have their own mobile view. But mm -hmm. mobile now means iOS and Android. So now we're talking about nine or more clients, nine or more different things that want to view and interact with that data. Right. And that number just kept scaling. Every time I talked to someone, they'd be like, oh, yeah, we're also, uh, we want to add in delivery as a thing. And mm -hmm. so that's going to be a new view. And they need web and mobile and, and the other thing. And Facebook, somewhat famously, when they talk about their GraphQL API, they have a thousand different client applications that still use the same single GraphQL API. And it mm -hmm. has no version. It's just been going the whole time. And... And that works. That's a thing that they can do. Mm -hmm. So where you have that sort of proliferation of different clients, different data needs, that's where GraphQL is absolutely going to shine. Right. But if you have any portion of that, if you have uh, even you know one single consumer for your for your data, I would still look at GraphQL. But the more different consumers, the more spread out you are, 
those are the sort of things where GraphQL is going to become extremely useful to you. Yes, I concur. <laughs> it's also interesting because like you can know as somebody, so like let's say you're working for that company that you were just talking about and you're working on this GraphQL API. You don't really know what's going on on the delivery side and on the mm -hmm. mobile side, iOS and Android. You don't really know what's happening, but you're considering making this change. And you recognize that like, oh, you know what? This is a really expensive field or for whatever mm -hmm. reason, right? Rather than like freak out about like, oh, like I've got to optimize this field because it's really expensive. You can actually look and say like, who's using this field? Yep. Oh, nobody is. What if we just delete it, right? Yep. Or like, oh, only one person is. Can I talk to that one person and have them migrate to this other field and then get rid of it? Like, or, I mean, you can leave it in there because that penalty, the cost right, of that is only field, that one person, right? It's only paid by whoever needs it. Yep. And you can see this on the client side, whereas mm -hmm. REST, you're just like, I don't know, somebody asked me for tags and they wanted to include the posts and the users yep. and the this, but you don't know exactly what they're using. And so you can get a little more insight from GraphQL. And you can do just cooler things. I don't know. It's just, it's. I, I'm of the opinion where if I am, if I were writing an API for external consumption versus writing a web app that's server rendered, I wouldn't hesitate. I think to use GraphQL mm -hmm. at this point. I mean, I guess there is the caveat of, like you mentioned, context is always a thing, and you know your industry better. And if you're working in a situation where you need to provide an API to these certain vendors and it's much more important to your, com to your company that those vendors can integrate with your API than it is important to that company that they get your data, right? Mm -hmm. And they know how to integrate with a REST API. Well, then you should provide a REST API, right? Yep. Like, <laughs> yep. And maybe that REST API can be built on top of your GraphQL API if you want to be fancy. But if all you're doing is providing an API to some third party and that third party tells you like, hey, unless you give it to me in a REST format, forget it. <laughs> and if you if it's critical that you integrate with that third party, then guess what? You're going to have to write a REST API. Yes, I would definitely recommend REST in that situation. But <laughs> so, broadly yeah. speaking, oh, no, I was just going to say, I don't want to say that like you should never do REST but, yeah. but uh, for an API. But when you don't have those situations, right, when you are writing, when you're in the situation, like you mentioned with that client where they're controlling most of this stuff, and maybe someday they will give this access to third parties. But the value to the, I, I think in those, in those situations, the third party would see the value in being like, okay, I'm going to do this GraphQL type thing. Like yep. the same way that you saw the value in being like, oh, well, I'm going to use this GraphQL GitHub API. Yep. The last bit for me is uh, I've also now sort of made my way back to the client side, but building out a much more robust client application in front of a GraphQL API. So previously with the tell me when it closes thing, that was just a Rails app that needed some data mm -hmm. and then was manipulating that data and sending emails or whatever. But with the client app that I was talking about, we built the GraphQL server, but then we also built a React client-side application that started to take advantage of some of the niceties of taking the queries that each page needed and having them live in those page components. And so you start to decouple the data access throughout your app, or not decouple, it's the opposite of that. You start to actually <laughs> be able to put that data information, the explicit data needs that you have for any given page or subcomponent within your app, can live inside those components. And initially, that was one of those things that I looked at. I was like, that's crazy. That's You're just making a mess. That's all you're doing. Mm -hmm. But it turns out with GraphQL, because you have the strongly typed schema, you can actually check whether or not a query is valid. You can determine that upfront, and you even get fancy feedback in Vim or whatever, VS Code or any of those. So it's actually doing live analysis to make sure that the query that you're writing is valid. So the idea that these are spread throughout your application doesn't actually concern me anymore. I didn't need to like compartmentalize that into an API concern within my little client app. I'm happy to push those down to exactly where they're used. So, so let me see if I get this straight. So you're writing a React app or whatever, 
and you your React app has like a start point, which is like, hey, I'm going to render a page component, right? Mm -hmm. And the page component is going to end up showing a listing of posts, and each post is going to show a component, which is like the author mm -hmm. and things like that. So instead of perhaps from a REST standpoint, being able to be saying like, well, the page has to know that it needs a list of posts and that those posts have to have author information. You can instead have each component there know, say like, I need this part of the information. Right. And the subcomponent can say, and I need this, and I need this. And then we can assemble one query from all that, basically. Right. So yeah, contrasting it with the REST example, the way this would happen in a REST world is you say, I'm going to hit the posts endpoint and get back the posts, mm -hmm. which is this big, somewhat opaque list of data that you're getting back. In a GraphQL world, the first approximation of this is you list out exactly the fields that you need for the posts because you're required to do that. Mm -hmm. But now, although it's a little bit more to type out, it's actually really nice to have that explicitness. So the first version of this is just you write the query in line next to your component. Mm -hmm. And as that component is starting to render, you know exactly what fields are going to be available. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I think the thing that you're alluding to is typically our UIs have this hierarchical nature. and. Yep. The list of posts is made up of each post, which has comments. Comments have users, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So there is the option within GraphQL to break a query into what are called fragments. Right. So there's like the little user fragment that says, I need the name and the avatar. And then there's the comments fragment that says, I need the text of the comment and the author. And the mm -hmm. author is one of these user fragments. And you start to build up the data needs in the same way that you're building up the components for your UI. And each component now that, that actually has data needs can express that right there in line. So this is some of the, the fancier stuff, and it's built into GraphQL, which is really nice. This is not a feature of one of the client-side libraries, although Apollo is the particular one that I've used in the world of React, and it does a great job of allowing for this and making this more straightforward. But as I've done that, I've, I've transitioned from apps using Redux and some of the other data flow patterns, and there's just a lot of code and a lot of noise, I would say. And with the GraphQL and Apollo and React sort of thing, and, and particularly putting the queries in the components, it all just kind of falls away. And you just say, like, I need this data, and then I'm going to render it. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And yeah. there's a real nicety to that. I'm very excited about that and sort of exploring that whole direction more and seeing where we can go with it. But uh, it's neat. So we're both big fans. What are the, like, from where I sit, the things I'm concerned about, I'm very concerned about it is, and I've said this on several episodes now, but, like, from a Ruby perspective, I'm not a huge fan of GraphQL Ruby at this mm -hmm. point. I think that there can be some things done to make it better. I want to see more of a class level, object level like interface to it rather mm -hmm. than a DSL. But I think that is a overcomable problem. Also, yeah. you could just use a different language. Uh, <laughs> so those types of things. Then there's like you need to learn new skills. Like you need not new skills. I guess new skills, right? So like in REST land, it's easy to know the query that you need to run to most optimally get the data back, right? Where you can say like, hey, I'm going to need posts, and I'm going to need to include the tags, and I'm going to need to include the authors, and I'm going to need to include the comments and their authors. Whereas in GraphQL, you don't know that up front. You only know that as you interpret the query. Like you don't know that at the time you write. Well, up front, I mean at the time you write the endpoint or you write the type, right? Mm -hmm. Because the user may ask for yep. authors or they may not. And so you have to learn a new way. And there are, these are solved problems. Like people are like, yes, I've hit n plus one queries too. And now you need to learn how to do, how to do that here. And you do yeah, that. GraphQL is basically n plus ones as a service. Right. Uh, <laughs> so you end but up again, with... it, is, it is a solved problem and a known problem, but it is a distinct solution than exactly. what we've historically done in the world of REST. So. Right. 
And so you have to like figure that stuff out. But none of those are a reason not to take it on, I think. And things like you could have a situation where you have teams and teams have people and people have teams and they have people and they have mm-hmm. teams and they have people and teams and people and teams and people and teams, people and teams. Yep. So you could write a query that just like explodes, right? Yep. So you need to potentially wrap some cost calculation or, or just some crude thing to say like you can only go X levels deep mm-hmm. or you could get more advanced than that. Things like that. These are new things that you need to learn, but I don't think they're insurmountable. Are there things that you have seen with GraphQL that like really you haven't seen a solution to or other things you th- you can think of that are like you're going to need to learn a new solution for this? I think I have a tendency to get excited by new technologies and sort of brush aside the time that is necessary to learn it. And I think part of that is that ThoughtBot is a wonderful company that gives me time on Fridays and I have wonderful colleagues that I get to hang out with and figure these things out. Wow, that sounds like so, a great place. Are they hiring? I think they are. Oh, okay. Could you go to thoughtbot.com slash jobs to you, see what we're hiring for? You absolutely could. I didn't even mean that audience, but, <laughs> I know, but it's true. It's a wonderful place. We have this time that that is available. So when I look back on it, I have actually invested a good amount of time in trying to understand GraphQL and particularly also some time at clients. So I, I think it's worth highlighting that like there is an on-ramp there. You're going to have to spend some time. That said, the discoverability and approachability of GraphQL is incredibly high relative to other technologies, particularly because of Graphical, which is the sort of playground interactive editor. Every GraphQL server in the world, you can do this with. Just It's built into the technology fundamentally. Uh, it's this little React app, and you can go in and start to type out queries, and it has type ahead and tells you what you can and can't query. and really helps you explore a GraphQL API. So every developer that I've worked with that was completely new to it, when they looked at Graphical, when they looked at that interactive editor experience, they're like, oh, okay, I get it. Yep, mm-hmm. this makes sense. Yep. So there is there is some stuff to learning, like to build a server is going to take some, some thinking. And so there is that cost. And in analyzing it, if your team knows REST through and through, and if you have a deadline that you need to hit, or if you have an existing REST API, like there will be a big cost to switching over to GraphQL, mm-hmm. but I consider it an investment, and I think it's a worthwhile one if you're able to do it. As for anything that I think can't be solved, nothing comes to mind. Actually, one of sort of as, a, as an anti-answer to that, uh, one of the things that I found really interesting is the design pressure that GraphQL imposes. Mm-hmm. So very similar to TDD, where we don't just do it to prevent regressions in the future. We do it because thinking about our tests first helps inform the interfaces that we build in our classes and things like that. GraphQL has a very similar experience in my mind where it helps you to think about the client experience first. How, how is data going to be consumed from this platform? Rather than in a REST API, typically what I see is like, all right, we've made the uh, the user's endpoint, the location's endpoint. Like you, you talk about just giving data out to the world without mm-hmm. thinking about what are the questions that we're trying to answer with this data? Uh, yeah. We actually we had a really interesting day one Friday. I remotely paired with uh, one of the ThoughtBot developers from New York, and he was just looking to poke around at the API. So I offered to spend some time with him and and walk through that. But by the end of it, it was I think only like two hours, and it was his first time ever working with GraphQL. But we were able to build in a few new types and connect them together. And suddenly we were able to ask a question of this data system hub, like, oh, who's on projects with these skills? Mm-hmm. And we were able to answer that question via graphical, via just poking at this API. And that question was unanswerable beforehand. Not like right. fundamentally unanswerable, but not in a comfortable way. Right. The existing REST API that we have in that system did not answer it. No page in the app answered it. And yet GraphQL and graphical made it almost trivial to ask and answer those questions. And there was something really inter- that sort of like clicked in my head of, oh, this is... This is more than just a different way to do APIs. This is right. a way to think about the data layer of your system 
And mm -hmm. it, it adds just another meaningful abstraction there that I think was probably missing historically. So. Yeah. And what I tell people to do and what I challenge, I guess maybe kind of like a challenge. If you've all only heard people on podcasts and read <laughs> blog posts about GraphQL, if you go to graphql.org slash learn, there's like a tutorial that mm -hmm. walks you through a theoretical GraphQL API built in the Star Wars universe or whatever. But it's just like very small, like, oh, here's how you query something. And mm -hmm. then in line, you can write a query and you can write the query they told you to write. Or you can write something else mm -hmm. and see what happens. Right. And that's how I like when I was like, okay, this this app client application uses GraphQL. I guess I should learn it. And so I went to GraphQL.org and I went to learn. And I went, and I was like, let let me start by saying like, oh, they picked this buzzword GraphQL API. I guess <laughs> I have to learn it. That's kind of where I was coming yeah. from. And then I went here and I was like, instantly within like the first page or two, I started thinking about like, how could I solve a problem at Thoughtbot using this? And <laughs> how it's can like, I find a way to right. fit this into well, a Friday? Well, no, just start thinking about not how can I find a way, but just like my brain starts thinking of all these problems mm -hmm. that it solves for me. And yep. like, oh, I could see this being immediately useful in answering this type of question from Hub or yep. on this past client project, if I had known about this thing existing or if it had existed, this could have been a, a useful thing to use. And I think that if people spend the time, and it's, it doesn't take long to go through the entire thing, you could do it in an evening sitting down. I mean, you can, I would say spend 10 minutes in a graphical instance mm -hmm. and it is addictive. It is, I would say, very intuitive and very, very addictive, for lack of a better word. It just, uh, for me, it just caught my attention. I was like, oh, and then I kept worrying that I was going to hit the wall at some point. It's like, all right, now I'm going to try and build a server and this is where everything's going to fall apart. And again, there, there was learning that needed to happen there. But once I learned it, it was great. And I continue to really enjoy it, and it's a it's one of the few areas that I just keep trying to go a little bit deeper in and use more. And at this point, I'm trying you know to evangelize it and get it out there so that we can get more thoughtbot projects using GraphQL, and I can have more <laughs> chances to play with it. Yeah, I think that we've been going for a while now, but I think we should have you back on at some point to talk about microservice architecture and gra <laughs> as it relates to GraphQL. Yep. Like we both kind of independently had these ideas of like, oh, wait a minute, I can see how this can give us our cake and eat it too. But I think we should tease the people with that. I like that. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for joining me, Chris. Thanks for having me, Derek. All right. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 157. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends. You can tweet about it on Twitter with the hashtag bikeshed. We'd appreciate that. If you have feedback about this episode or any of our other episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at hosts at bike shed.fm or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to the bike shed and we'll see you next time. If you think Derek got that in one take, you are mistaken. <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.